Good morning, church. Um, we are going to look at the scripture passage for today. So if you would like to follow along, um, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you that you can pull out. The scripture passage for this morning will be Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. You can find that passage on page 1781 in those pew Bibles in front of you. Let's read God's word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Becca. If you're new to High Point, um, the reason that's the passage for this morning is just because it's next. We preach through books of the Bible, passage by passage. And so if you should have fished, you're like, why is that the passage for this morning? It's just the next one. We did the ones before it earlier, and we'll do the ones after it next. Which brings us to um, the Advent series. Um, the Advent series this year is going to be Jesus the Incarnate Warrior. Um, that may sound a little aggressive to you, um, but the, the reason is, is that what's next in Ephesians is putting on the full armor of God. And because we're also celebrating the birth of Jesus, what we're going to do in our preaching is connect the—what it means to be a— to be spiritually enwarriored by putting on the armor of God and how Jesus fulfilled that perfectly as the incarnate one and we'll be relating the two together so that it'll follow the Christmas theme of Jesus being incarnate, but specifically how he was an incarnate warrior and it'll, we'll move towards what it means that he was the prince of peace as that warrior. And so that's what we're going to be exploring through Advent. We're going to be finishing the book of Ephesians. We're going to be specifically focusing on what it means to put on the full armor of God and engage in what Christians have sometimes called spiritual warfare. And we'll be doing it directly in relationship to Jesus as the incarnate one, okay? So that's going to be super fun. And invite whoever you think that would be appropriate for, which is everyone, okay? All right, so this morning, um, you, you, you recognize probably in the reading that there's a reference to slaves and masters in the text, and I, I'm not going to talk about slavery this morning and slavery in the Bible. I did that in two, 2014 on August 17th. That sermon, which is an hour long, but on a podcast that's speeded up to 2.0 is only 30 minutes, um, uh, is specifically on those questions. And so I spent a considerable amount of time putting those thoughts together and working through that in that sermon. It was re-released on the Engage and Equip podcast. So please download that episode and listen to it because it's something you need to understand and be equipped about in our present society. Today I actually want to deal with something that's even a step deeper than that. Um, that is a sort of a deeper cultural problem of belief and then how we, how we deal with it. So I want, I want to get into it this way. Um, I want to talk for a minute about the triumvirate of evil, which is food, physical intimacy, and sports. Okay, so Imagine somebody coming forward who was like the ruler of your world, okay? Imagine that we were a little world and I was like the emperor and I was like, okay, listen. Food has been nothing but problems for the human race. 
In Egypt and Babylon, there were already sayings that a man lives on a quarter of the food he eats and his doctor on the other three quarters. With the advent of massive poverty, obesity, in America right now, people, poor people are dying of obesity, not starvation. In other places of the world, because of the inequity of food distribution, people are starving, right? Food creates all kinds of jealousies and self-hatreds, and we use it to medicate ourselves. There's so many ways in which food is destroying us. You include our pesticides and our poisons, our antibiotics and our meats, the, all the new diseases we're getting that were unheard of in ages past. Food is killing us, so we're all going to get a little food port. And we're going to get plugged in a couple times a day, and we're going to get like a perfect cocktail of vitamins and minerals and like, you know what I mean? All the stuff we need, and we'll eat some kind of inert matter so our digestive system doesn't rot inside of us and kill us. And all of that will go away. All of the inequality, all of the diseases, all of that stuff, it'll be fantastic, okay? While you're digesting that, get the pun. Um, Also, we're going to get rid of physical intimacy. Okay, now listen, I know that may not sound obvious, but just think of all the trouble and heartache and destruction wreaked upon the human existence on the basis of this, okay? Like, literature from time immemorial has been about human beings killing each other and fighting and fighting whole wars. I mean, think about the epic of Troy, an entire war. Tens of thousands of people, if not more, killed over a woman switching guys, right? And like, beauty is this thing that everybody's trying to capture, and it, it's on the, it, it like, it just finds a way and creates, um, abductions and prostitution and, and a, a flesh trade all over the world and pornography wreaking havoc upon males and females everywhere in the, in the relationships between each other. If you add into that all the time we spend wasting thinking about it when we're supposed to be doing other things, the lack of productivity, the destruction of relationships, the fighting between women over men, the fighting between men over women, all of that could just be put away. We could just be just more happy ordered, peaceful, productive individuals, and we're just going to get rid of it. We're just going to—we're just going to quit with it. Whatever we have to do, we've got this new electronic chastity belt, and it's going to work fantastic, okay? So we're going to get rid of that, and I mean, just think about how much better our lives are going to be just getting rid of those two things. We're also going to get rid of the third major scourge on American society, which is sports, okay? Like, this is one of the worst things we've ever done, and if we get back the money we waste on sports and porn, we're going to be—we can pay off the deficit, okay? Like, it's crazy, and like, sports are supposed to be this thing where like people have fun and play games and get in shape, and they play with each other locally around people that they know and care about so that they can enjoy themselves. But that's not what we do, right? We have a couple of kids destroy their bodies so they can be like on the whatever level, and we're all supposed to go and watch them play sports instead of play sports. We even cheer for people we've never met, we'll never meet, who don't care about us, who don't know us, who play a game that's not even really that interesting and that doesn't matter at all, and then we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on this, and we waste all of our time, and because of one of the sports, we don't even go to church, okay? So like, we're gonna get rid of all of this stuff, okay? We're gonna get rid of sports, we're gonna get rid of physical intimacy, and we're gonna get rid of food. And when we get rid of that stuff, man, human life is gonna be fantastic. Who's with me? Right? You're like, I was kind of with you on the food stuff until you said the solution, and then it went downhill from that. Okay, why? Look, most of the stuff I just said is kind of true. So, so, because there were a lot of people when I was saying the negative stuff, you were like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, uh uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I got to the solution, and you're like, I don't know about that. You see, one of the things that Christians understand about the world, we're supposed to understand about the world, is that Some of the most foundational things about human existence are some of the things that are the most potent 
And so when sin enters or the curse affects those things, they become conduits for the curse and they become our biggest problems. So the things that are are supposed to be part of us and be some of the best things about us as human beings, individually and with each other, can very easily and very quickly become some of the worst things about our lives if they are not redeemed and reconquered by keeping in step with the Spirit, the growth of virtue in Christ, and the transformation that comes through faith in Jesus, the resurrected King. Does that make sense? Now, am I about to say, listen, so slavery is one of those things? No. But I, I am going to say that hierarchy is one of those things. Which is, in some ways, just as controversial now. Right? In some ways, people want to, want to believe that hierarchies are the root of injustice, and they are—they come from a natural past of, of the evolutionary development of domination, rape, and, um, and viciousness. And therefore, these are—all hierarchies are, are vestiges of that. And we will never have a just and equitable society. We'll never have a good life together. And we'll never be good people as long as we give ourselves to such things. Of course, there are problems with that view. It may be that— hierarchies exist so that people can order themselves in their non-equal ways to maximize their productivity and to avoid tyranny and anarchy. Right? But one of the things we have to face first is that um, hierarchy or asymmetrical relationships, you can call them, or non-egalitarian relationships or leader-supported relationships are foundational norms in human organization. You could say it this way. Humans organize themselves into hierarchies literally always. There aren't any humans in a group that aren't in some form of hierarchical relationship with one another. Now, if you think about that for a minute, think about this for a second. In some ways, that's the secret to why friendship is so special. One of the things that we've lost in American culture because we want to believe that hierarchies aren't fundamental to human life is it actually devalues the one, the one relationship— that exists in human affairs that is truly designed to be non-hierarchical, which is friendship. It's one of the reasons why human beings have gone in the number of friendships in their lives over the last 50 years. It's one of the reasons why friendship should be cherished so highly, and we should be committed to it much more deeply than we are. And we shouldn't be using friendship consumeristically, because when you use friendship consumeristically, you're actually a friend with somebody for what they can give you, which means they have it more than you do, which means your friendship is what? Consumeristically hierarchical. Right? Now, there's a few realities of hierarchies that we have to get in place before we can even talk about how to be Christian in one. That are just the—if the, we don't start with reality on this, and we only start with ideology, these shouldn't exist, right? We, we can't get anywhere. So here's four. One is, all humans organize themselves into hierarchies. This is sociologically absolutely true over 150 people, because you can't have relationships of egalitarian trust with more than 150 people. The tribe's too large, so you have to restructure it. If you restructure it into representation, by definition, you have hierarchy. So it just frankly doesn't work in any group with over 150 people. It usually doesn't work with more than three people, though. Okay, all human beings organize themselves into hierarchies. One example of this um, in the last few years was um, in 2011, there was a movement called Occupy Wall Street. Okay. Occupy Wall Street was a group of people who came together to protest what they believed was the injustice created by one of the most hierarchical places in human existence, which, which is Wall Street. Wall Street purports itself to be a hierarchy of absolute competence in relationship to the financial markets, right? Now, we'll get into whether or not any hierarchy can be that, but we'll start with that. 
the Occupy Wall Street people didn't just come together to protest that, but they came together to protest that as a fully and completely non-hierarchical group, okay? Which was kind of their downfall. Because what actually ended up happening was over a couple of months of time when they occupied um, the park outside of Wall Street was they got all of the liabilities of anarchy, not having a hierarchy, and then they got all of the liabilities of hierarchy because they didn't set one up on purpose. So one reporter talked about going to a meeting at, at an early Occupy Wall Street, and there were like 27 people trying to have a meeting. The question was, should we make name tags? The meeting took four hours, and at the end of four hours, there was no decision about name tags, and everybody just walked away. Okay? And that was endemic. No decisions could actually be made. And, and therefore, there were, no, there were no real marches. There were no fundamental protests. There were just people there regular, relatively angry. Now, to contrast this, then in the 1960s, the civil rights movements in America was extremely hierarchical and accomplished a lot. Okay? Now, in addition to that, what happened with Occupy Wall Street was after a couple of months, people started naturally getting sick of this, and they started promoting themselves on the basis of charisma rather than competence. And so you started to get people who started speaking for the movement or started creating leadership groups and so on that just thought that they should be the person. Right? Even Saturday Night Live made fun of the group because they went down there and the, the whole little society had split into by class. The people were like, yeah, those are the uptown people up there, and we're the downtown people. And there were like drum groups down here, and there were people with like lattes and libraries up there. So they got class distinction, they got chaos, and then ultimately they got 1% hierarchy. Because at the end of the movement, there were about— there were some people meeting in the Dutch bank building, the German bank building, in this like glass office in a little circle, making all the decisions for the group. And if you divided that number into the number of people who are part of Occupy Wall Street who are camping, guess what percentage it about came out to? 1%. So even when—and and I'm not saying those people are stupid, okay? Listen, there's some people like, those Occupy Wall Street, they were a bunch of hippies. No. There's a very educated, like very well-meaning, very interested people who believe that they had a very right cause. And they were trying to make a real change. And to a certain extent, there was a large amount of the public that would have been behind some of the changes that they were after. I don't think it was their cause that was the problem in terms of changing things. It was their lack of organization and the rejection of a basic fundamental human principle. And in their idealism, they lost their ideals and their ability to carry out any of their ideals because they had an inhuman idea about how humans relate to each other, okay? Secondly is, okay, listen, if you're sitting there and you have a basic progressive outlook on the world and you think I just attacked it, I did, okay? And when I get down to number three, I'm going to attack conservatives and libertarians, okay? So just hang in there. Christianity offends everybody equally, okay? It's a very equitable system. Okay, second is hierarchies offer really great benefits, Right? And because we experience those benefits, sometimes we don't think about them, but they are extreme and profound benefits. The reason humans organize themselves in hierarchies is so that they can maximize competency and they can keep themselves away from corruption. One of the things that is found in the, um, the Federalist Papers among the Founding Fathers of the United States was the reason they believed we need a more hierarchical central government in the Constitution, as opposed to the Articles of Confederation, was that the Articles of Confederation weren't strong enough, and they weren't a more a powerful enough hierarchy, which people didn't like in America, because they didn't like kings and hierarchies. They wanted the least hierarchical system they could possibly get. And one of the arguments the American founders made, especially John Jay and Hamilton, if I remember correctly, was, no, the re— no, wait, it was Madison, sorry, who said this. He said, listen, here's what you need to understand. How do you get tyranny? 
how does tyranny happen? Right? People go, well, corruption of hierarchies, isn't it? Well, sort of, but not really. The quickest way to tyranny is anarchy. When no one's in charge, and people do, to quote the Bible, whatever's right in their own eyes, everybody starts feeling like they can't trust their neighbor. And so they feel like somebody's got to organize this. Somebody's got to, like, protect me from other people. And then they look to somebody who's powerful enough to do so. And then they put that person in charge, and then that person is in charge and his cronies forever. And so the Founding Fathers said, in order to escape tyranny, we have to make sure there isn't any way we can fall into anarchy. The only way to make sure we're not either in anarchy or tyranny is to have the proper kind of competence-based hierarchy that is strong enough so that things get done and people are protected from both anarchy and tyranny, but is also responsive enough to the people that are being governed and that are part of it so that everybody is benefiting from that structure. Because that is, in their argument, was the most human way to form things, understanding not just our abilities, but also our faults. Okay? And so they're enormously productive in that they keep us from tyranny and anarchy, but they also are the most productive organization of human beings. Just go out and find a business that's not hierarchical. There have been many who have tried, especially newer ones made by millennials and Gen Z people. There have been a number of businesses that have started out, we're going to be totally unhierarchical. It's going to be everybody—yeah, it lasts about 20 minutes, okay? And because there's too much conflict. There's somebody's got to be like, look, you need to grow up. Like, or this is what we're going to do. Or look, I'm the one who keeps the books. We're not making a profit. We're going to do it this way, or we're going to close the doors. Somebody—and here's why. Because somebody has to take responsibility. And responsibility is a very difficult load, and nobody wants it. They want all the benefits, but they don't want all the liabilities. And so somebody's got to do it, or there's chaos. But if somebody's going to take responsibility, they have to be able to execute that responsibility, which means they need authority. And giving anybody authority because you've given them a responsibility is the essence of the creation of hierarchy. Right? So there's lots of benefits. Third is, all human hierarchies are prone to corruption, because all human hierarchies have what in them? Say it with me. Humans. Okay? Human beings are prone to corruption in all kinds of ways. Okay, so this is where if you're like a libertarian or a conservative, you're like, no, I like the hierarchies. They're fantastic. Okay, maybe that's right. But listen, when people say, yeah, but the problem with hierarchies is they grow corrupt, they're right. Hierarchies, because they have people in them, and because people who have responsibility need to be given authority, because authority is a kind of power, and because power always naturally corrupts human beings, all hierarchies will naturally grow corrupt. And so they require accountability, and they require really good people, and they require constant reform, both of structure and human beings. They, they tend to grow corrupt. And they're deeply susceptible to all seven of the deadly sins. You just walk through the deadly sins, and you're like, I see how that could corrupt a hierarchy. I see. Right? Lust. You just—you promote people for the wrong reasons. You bring people in your circles for the wrong reasons. Pride. Oh, that could not—there's no way that that or envy could apply, right? Or anger, like consolidating power so that you can attack another faction, so that you can consolidate more power for yourself. All of those things have a lot of opportunities within hierarchies. And so everybody has to recognize that though hierarchies can produce a good, and though they're the natural way all human beings relate to each other, they're also naturally and always self-corrupting because they involve power right? And it's important to recognize hierarchies are not only corrupted by the people in charge, they're also corrupted by the subordinates. The subordinates are always trying to get a better deal for themselves too, right? Like, if, if, for example, if you work in a factory and you were told to make a thing a certain way, 
and you just don't, you cut corners, right? You're corrupting the hierarchy. If you work for $6 or 7 whatever, minimum wage, and you're like making mocha cappuccinos, and you don't make everyone the best you possibly can, you're corrupting the hierarchy. Because you're passively, aggressively rebelling against what produces the productivity. The more that happens, the more the person in charge has to try to make sure that productivity is optimal. So then they have to fight with you, and you're creating problems. And that happens all the time. People in the middle are always trying to get a better deal for themselves, but they're always being squished from both sides. Everybody in the hierarchy who's a human corrupts the system naturally. It's not just a rich people thing or a poor people thing. It's a human thing. Does that make sense? Okay, and then lastly, what that means is, therefore, all hierarchies require constant active reform, especially when they are the most healthy. There has to always be constant reforming energy in every hierarchy all the time, especially when it's healthy, because that's the best time to keep it healthy. Once a hierarchy starts going downhill, it's, it's harder and harder to correct it. So if you're like, if you're like, if you're at high point, you're like, things are going good at high point. I don't have to go to congregational meetings. I'm sure that it's fantastic. Or I don't need to be on the elder board. The elder board's hard, and I don't want to have to take that kind of responsibility. My church is fine. Yeah, except the problem is, the only way for any organization, including one like this, or even a family, is if the people, is if the leadership of that hierarchy are constantly being reformed, and people are taking personal moral responsibility, and being renewed in virtue, and being confronted by Christ to do what's right, and to receive the accountability necessary by whoever is in charge of accountability, which in a church like ours is the elder board and then the congregation, right? Keep looking up there, and there's nothing there. Okay. Now, what that means is that we have to come back to the biblical concept of stewardship. Stewardship is the idea that you have been given a trust of some kind. That wherever you are in whatever hierarchies you're in, because you're in many, right? You're in a family hierarchy, you're in a church hierarchy, you're in a governmental hierarchy, you're in a business hierarchy, you're in a community hierarchy, you may be within the hierarchy of any number of voluntary organizations. You are main—most of your relationships that you are in are hierarchical relationships. And in each one of them, you have a place. And that place has a certain amount of authority and responsibility, and that makes up your trust. And the question is, are you fulfilling your trust in those relationships? Now, for some of you who are trying to work out your social theory, that is what Christians have argued for a number of generations, is the meaning of social justice. Okay? Social justice isn't supposed to mean this certain political set of things, or this, like, you should vote for these people, or we should have this poly. What social justice means is you are acting justly in the concentric circles of the social relationships in which you exist. So, you're fulfilling your responsibility to your immediate neighbors in your building or in your neighborhood. What they deserve from you as a neighbor, you give to them. That's social justice. What your government deserves from you as, as an amalgamation of all of our will and our working together on the governmental level for those things, you giving your government what it deserves from you is your act of social justice. In your family, what you do with other family members, what they rightly deserve from you and what you owe to them, is your work of social justice. Now, you may believe that what the government deserves from you is protest about a particular policy that should be changed to increase the justice of your community. And you may protest your government as an act of social justice. That isn't what social justice is. 
It's an application of social justice. Do you understand? And that's why you can't just call that thing social justice and nothing else. You have to argue for why, which, why, why is this protest the most prudential way of asking the government to do what's right? You have to make an argument for that. Do you understand? You can't just say, it's social justice. That's called demagoguing. Do you understand? Okay, great. So what that means is you have to accept your trust, A, without a victim mentality. It's not wrong that you're in hierarchies. All human societies have and will organize themselves in hierarchies. You are in a number of them. The fact that you are not at the top, or, or maybe at the bottom, or wherever you are, is not in and of itself an injustice. You may have been put there unjustly. You may—people may be working to keep you there unjustly. People may harm you unjustly in the use of their authority while you're in the hierarchy. That can all be true. But fundamentally, first before God, the fact that we are in hierarchies— and that we have trusts that we must be good stewards over is not in and of itself an injustice. And we should not have a victim mentality about our work and our responsibilities. Do you understand? Now, second to that is, that doesn't mean the structure is right. Right? In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about, um, to all kinds of people, and he's saying, listen, whatever station or trust you find yourself in, you should embrace that and live it out as beautifully for Christ as you can. And then he mentions slavery as an example, and he says, listen, if you are a slave, don't let it trouble you. Why shouldn't you let it trouble you? That's a terrible thing. Well, the reason you shouldn't let it trouble you on the deepest human level is because you can serve Christ in any situation, even the most unjust. So, for example, in this passage, you have two hierarchies. The most just hierarchy in the whole world, and perhaps the most unjust hierarchy in the whole world. Right? The most just being the parent-child hierarchy. It's probably the most just hierarchy in the whole world. And then you have slavery, master-slave, which is arguably the least just or least legitimate hierarchy in the whole world. And the apostle's argument is, it, legitimacy aside for a minute, you don't need to let any position you have in any hierarchy trouble you in itself. Because—and here's why. Because you can serve Jesus and not men in that spot. Right? Now you might be like, that's a terrible thing to say. That's like— it's almost like saying injustice is good. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. We'll get to the next phrase in just a second, which undoes that. But think about this. Today, in 2019, in the world, there are more slaves numerically than at any other time in human history. Okay? Now, a few years ago, I was sitting in Mumbai. I was sitting with—I was sitting and having tea with a sex slave who was HIV positive. There were two or three of these prostitutes in the room with me, and we were talking about the Lord. And they were churchgoers. They accepted Jesus, they had been baptized, and they were churchgoers, and they were actively sex slaves. Okay? The whole thing had been reported to IJM and to the Indian government. They weren't working very fast. IJM couldn't do very much. The Indian government was only, was only focusing on girls 14-year-olds or younger who were being brought into sex slavery and girls who were close to virginity. The, these kind of women just weren't, weren't thought of as being worth the extra work. Okay? So what am I supposed to tell her? She asks me, Pastor Nick, how do I serve Jesus as a sex slave? What do I say? Well, sweetie, listen, you're just going to hell. Like, like, you're stuck. You can't get out. You can't serve Jesus as a prostitute. So, and you can't get out of being a prostitute. So you're just going to hell. Like, that's all there is to it. I'm sorry. Thank you for the chai. Right, you see, 
part of the beauty and brilliance of Christian faith is that it can take the world as it is and start there and tell people exactly what their calling is, where they are at this moment, and it can speak a word of condemnation to the unjust structures of the world and demand that they be changed simultaneously. So the, Christ, so the Christian pastor can sit with the sex slave in Mumbai and say, listen, sweetie, if you can get out of this, uh, this obligation, do so, and we will help you financially to do it. And the churches we're working with will help you financially to do it. And if you can get out of it as a believer, you should. But if you literally can't, all you can do is serve the Lord the best you can, given the situation you're in, and don't let it trouble you. That not, not that the injustice shouldn't trouble her, that a human being shouldn't have to live this way, but that there is no condemnation on God upon her, and she can have a human purpose relative to her diminished state, even in that injustice, so that she retains her humanity and her dignity, hopefully temporarily in that state, until she can be pulled out of it. But she can hold her dignity indefinitely. What's the difference between that and poverty? Right? You might not be literally a slave, but you may be so impoverished in a particular work that you can't find a way economically to get out of. It feels completely dehumanizing. If there is not a word that comes into that injustice and says, you have the full human dignity right this moment on one level, if you believe in a certain way, you cannot let it trouble you. Right? But what's the very next line Paul says? The very next phrase he says is, but if you can get your freedom, do so. And in many places, especially including this one, Paul directly speaks to the fundamental injustice of brothers and sisters enslaving each other, or one human thinking that they can own another human. That there can be a word of condemnation to the structure itself. But for the most part, for example, in the Bible, Christians are an infinitesimal minority. They don't have any political power. Paul can't undo slavery. He's in the position I was in in Mumbai. He was speaking to believers in a particular situation and giving them the word of gospel they required in a situation they couldn't change. You might be like, well, the master could have changed it. Actually, not in a Greco-Roman city. If you try to change it in a Greco-Roman city, they're going to track down your slave. They're, going to, they're probably going to kill your slave as a public example, which means your slave isn't only going to die, they're probably going to be crucified publicly, which is the worst death that had been invented for a human being up until that point. And then you know what they're going to do after that? They're going to come and kill you. That was the standard Greco-Roman practice. Why? Because almost more than 50% of people in some Roman cities were slaves. You had to do anything necessary to keep from slave revolts. It was absolutely necessary politically because of the regime they had. So they were not understanding about this. Right? So, we have to recognize that we can live literally in any situation with the dignity of the gospel without a victim mentality, even when we are horrifically victimized. And we can speak a word of condemnation to an unjust structure and work for its justice in its transformation simultaneously. Because all reform is in a state of corruption and reform. If you only come at the world with just like sheer ideolo ideological blindness, you're like, everything should be perfect right now or everybody's bad, then everybody's condemned and nothing's worth working on. And everyone's your enemy. Right? It is this moral tension that is not only realistic and not only makes working for reform worthwhile, 
but also demonstrates the genius of God in his work of redemption in the complex nature of destructive human societies that have the potential for great good. Okay, sorry that was a rant. I thought it was necessary. Okay, so how do you embrace your stewardship? Right? So if that's your stewardship, how do you embrace it? And the answer is we have to embrace hierarchies, that they exist and that we're going to be part of them, under King Jesus, who rewards the good and is no respecter of persons. We have to embrace hierarchies under King Jesus, who rewards the good and is no respecter of persons. Okay, so first, we have to embrace hierarchy under King Jesus as his slaves. Now, the metaphor of slavery in this context related to God doesn't mean that we are God's slaves literally. Okay, the metaphor of us being the slaves of God, which is used throughout the New Testament and Bible, is specifically in reference to the relationship of authority and submission. That is, God is always absolutely correct, and it's always right for us to do what he tells us to do. In a deep relationship of respect to his authority and responsibility, and him telling us what our authority and responsibility is. That's the context. It doesn't mean—it does not carry with it the metaphor of abuse or— or ownership in the negative sense. He owns us like a father owns his child, not like a master owns his slave. Does that make you understand? Okay. So, a couple things to understand about this. In the Bible, hierarchy is a pre-fall and a heavenly ordinance, meaning this. That some people are in charge of things and other people are subordinate to them exists before the entrance of sin and the curse into the world. There's a hierarchy between the man and the woman before the fall ever happens. Ignoring that is how the fall—part of how the fall does happen, and it's part of the reason Adam is condemned and cursed in the curse. God literally says, because you listen to your wife, this, and that's not like a glib, like, you shouldn't be listening to women. That's not what he's saying. He sa- the reason he says, because you listened to your wife, is not because you shouldn't listen to women. He said that because in the nature of their relationship, Adam being already pre-educated about what God wanted in Genesis 2, the woman being brought about after that educational process, and her, her access to that being limited at that point, he was supposed to exercise his authority, and he didn't, right? And God saw that as fundamental to why the fall happened and what was going on. Also, throughout the Bible, you have things called archangels, Right? And the way, the way heaven is talked about, and even in the angelic experience, there's hierarchy within the angels. Even within the person of God, there's this discussion within the persons of the Trinity of authority and responsibility being split up. So that there's this interpersonal relationship in the persons of the Trinity, but there is in a certain way hierarchical responsibility sharing and authority sharing within the person of God himself. Right? Even inside of you— there's hierarchy, right? Like, when your emotions want something, and your moral conscience has an opinion about it, and your will is involved, who's in charge? Have you never had a situation where you, like, really, really, really wanted to do X? <laughs> your feelings wanted to do X, and your moral conscience was like, we ain't doing no X. Who's in charge, right? You see, If you don't have a proper hierarchy inside your own soul, right, the one who is not supposed to be in charge takes control, that is your emotions, and takes you all over the place and wrecks your life, right? Your conscience is supposed to be in charge. He's the boss. That's who you're supposed to—that's who decides whether or not you're doing X. But does that mean your feelings don't matter? No, your feelings matter as much as your conscience matters. Your feelings matter immensely. It, it, 
Your feelings begin to determine like what you're passionate about and what you care about and how much intensity there is for it and all kinds of super important things and how you're going to live your life. And your feelings, you have to hear feelings. If you don't listen to your feelings, your body starts to break down. Like your mind starts to go crazy and your conscience starts to get really confused. Your feelings, your, your, your emotional self is incredibly important to listen to, but it better, in God's name, it better not be in charge. There had better be a hierarchy even within the voices of your own soul, and yet an equal valuing in their lane of all of your human faculties. So it shouldn't be so hard to comprehend that there could be a hierarchical relationship of responsibility and action in the person of God when it's going on inside your own little mind and heart right now. Right? Now, in this passage, there's a few things. So, Let's just go through the language of this passage quickly. One is that your master in any hierarchy is your, quote, master, quote, according to the flesh. Now that phrase does two things. One is it says it's temporary. It says it is as low as the flesh, meaning that it's like it's not ultimate. And it contrasts the end of the passage where it says that God, who is your real master, who is in heaven— There's a contrast between your earthly or fleshly master and your greater master, Jesus, who is in heaven. That is, that the—by calling our—whoever has authority over us, our earthly master or our fleshly master, there is an implicit argument of the non-ultimateness of the person in authority over you. And you have to realize that. You may be like, I know that. Well, listen, no. There's a lot of us who behave like we will sell our moral soul to make whoever's in charge of us happy as though they're a god. And they aren't. Right? Second is to do so with fear and trembling. I think it says respect and fear in the NIV. That's an intentionally softening of the language because of how emotionally um, problematic we find all of this language. But it says that you should obey your, quote, master with, quote, fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling, the, the reason we get those two words together in the English language is because in Greek they rhyme. The two Greek words rhyme and they sound cool when you say them. And so literally they get put together, fear and trembling. But that's what it says. Now, what that means is that whoever you are responsible to submit to, they should feel as though you are obeying and supporting them as though it was right for you to literally be afraid and trembling at their presence. That is, you should behave in such a way in which you are in all of the nonverbal and verbal signals that you're giving to the person you're subordinate to, that they are in charge, you know they're in charge, you're supportive of their leadership, you're glad they're in leadership, and you want to help them succeed at least to fulfill their responsibilities. Now, they may be corrupt and mean and a jerk, and maybe they shouldn't even be in that position. But that's actually not your job. Your job is to help them fulfill their trust— and to bring about the thing they are responsible to bring about. That's your job. And they should feel like you are on board with that. Now, the reason why that's important is because because the Lord is going to say right after this to the the master or the person in authority, do not be waving your authority around like a gun. You should never have to pull that out of its holster. Do you understand? You should be able to hold your authority without handling or brandishing your authority. But you see, the only way that can work in a hierarchy is if the person who is subordinate subordinates themselves and obeys with fear and trembling the person they're supposed to support. And then the proper response to that, or initiation, depending on which you are, is 
for that person to not lord over their authority over the other person and to care about their well-being and to act out of thankfulness and joy towards the attitude they're receiving from their subordinate. That's the only way for that relationship to be healthy. And it starts with this, from the position of the subordinate. He says, in order to do this, you have to have a singleness of heart in what you're doing. What that means is this. You can't have a victim mentality also. Do you understand? Your heart can't be divided. One of the things I look for immediately when I'm counseling a couple who's having marriage problems is I try to assess how real the alternative of divorce is in their minds. Because that's, that's a super important thing to find out. Because of the couple for whom it's not, they have a really big problems, but divorce isn't an option in their mind at all. They only have one possible solution for their marriage to get better. I'll take that couple over the one that has mild problems, but for whom divorce is like a real option. Why? Because if you're not single of heart, you don't solve problems. And you can't do things that are emotionally difficult. If you believe you have another option emotionally, your emotional energy is split between the two, and you're actually pulling against yourself. And so what you're using your own emotional energy to wear out your emotional energy that's going in the other direction. And so you feel exhausted and resentful and frustrated and angry, and you're extremely unproductive, and usually it's going to feed over into those relationships and start to destroy them and create a difficulty in your hierarchical and your friendship relationships. So he's like, look, you need to have a single heart. Put away your anger. Talk to God about it in prayer. If you have an opportunity that's actionable to work towards a justice you feel like is unjust, then take the action. But don't let your, your soul seethe in the splitness of a victim mentality. Have a single heart. And if you're like, well, I can't have a single heart towards my jerk boss, or my jerk husband, or my jerk pastor, or my jerk government official, or my jerk poli community police officer, or my jerk— Right. That's why he says, as to Christ. Because the picture in your mind of the person you're serving ultimately, you have to see beyond the jerk human who is inherently corrupt in the hierarchical relationship, beyond him to the uncorrupt, fully competent Christ, and serve him ultimately. It's the only way a Christian, because he has—Jesus has done nothing unjust to you. He's done only good to you. And, and he has sacrificed for you. He has given everything. He has put himself under you in action to lift you up, though he was infinitely higher than you in authority. And he has then called you to serve him, and you are his slave in the sense that you were bought at a price and redeemed, and you belong to him in creation. You are fully his and under his authority, and so you should obey him. And so your mentality of who it is you're obeying can be the sweet— and good, and beautiful, and righteous, and loving, and sacrificial Christ. And then you have to serve the person you're actually subordinate to in relationship to how you would serve Jesus. Right? When I was in seminary, I worked at, at a restaurant. I'm gonna say something negative, so I won't name the restaurant. Um, and I was making just above minimum wage, and I was working nights. I was getting home at like 2 a.m. I smelled the smoke. My wife wouldn't let me in the bed till I took a shower, which is just annoying, but reasonable in a way. And um, it was just—it was a difficult time. I was—you know, I'm, I'm, do, I'm studying, like, between all my classes, I'm studying like 65 hours a week or more, and then I'm going—I'm working this job, right? And it was a pretty thankless job, right? They figured, you, you know, these hosts are—they're a dime a dozen, right? But I was the guy that stood at the front door and had Chicago business people swearing at me and calling me a GDMF and like, how dare you tell me I'm gonna have to wait three hours to eat this food and like, all this stuff. And I just—I just, I just I'm like, sir, 
you'll feel a lot better if you have a mai tai. Like I was just super polite, right? And I was getting abused constantly and paid a very small wage. And like if I had said, you know, my, my manager, let's call him Bill, you know, if, if I was, you know, Bill doesn't appreciate me, right? Like I, why am I doing this job? This is stupid, right? Like I could have done that. And there were times where I kind of felt that way, right? And if I would have just said, well, I have to do this to pay my bills and I have to do this to support my wife and we have a family and this is part of my responsibility, that's better than my stupid boss, right? That's a better idea. But is that really going to sustain me through nights of these shifts of people mistreating me? And the answer is not really, not happily. Not so that I can look them in the face and be like, look, sir, I wish I could make all these people dissolve so that you could eat right now. I really would love that. But it's, it's just going to be two and a half hours before we can get you the crab you want. You know what I'm saying? And so I understand you're upset. Like, I know you're trying to have a nice night and make it to a movie. I get it, right? You can—the only time way you can answer like that to people who hate your guts on the spot because you're not doing what they want because they're being shallow and stupid is if you believe you're serving Christ. You have to get there emotionally. Turns out when you get there emotionally, you do your job a lot better and you get promoted too. Sometimes above the idiotic boss that you don't want to submit to. But that's a, that's, a, that's a career sermon, not a Bible sermon. Okay, so, uh, so come for counseling for that. As to Christ, not in eye service as man pleasers. You gotta, you gotta burn to death the whole, like, look, I'll do, I'll do stuff that looks good when he's watching, but I ain't doing it stuff when he's not there. No, no, no. Your boss is always watching. You are yourself always. Your trust or stewardship is a stewardship of the gospel, not just your job. You bear the character of Christ to the world, and there is no Jesus. There's no, there's no moment of Jesus where he was like, well, nobody's watching right now, or I don't really have to do this. That's not how that rolls, right? Okay, we're on time, sorry. And then slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the soul. It's translated in the heart. It's, a, it's the word for your soul or your inner person. What you're doing, how you serve as serving God has to come from the deepest part of you. If it's coming from a shallower place, I service, man-pleasing. It's not—it won't be a fountain of life. It won't really—it won't make you float. Do you understand? All right. Second thing is King Jesus rewards good without respect to hierarchy. It's important to remember. Jesus rewards the good without respect to hierarchy. So, for example, when he says—it's really interesting what, what Paul says. He says to masters, he says, Masters, treat your slaves—and this is a phrase we read over and don't pay much attention to—in the same way— now think about the irony of that. <laughs> he's talking to the master. He's like, you know, masters, this is how you should treat your slaves. The same way they treat you. That the same, what he's saying is the exact same principles by which I'm telling the subordinates to relate to you, the person in authority, it's the exact same principles by which you're going to relate to them. The difference is, is that those principles r- will cause different actions in your position. So for the slave, the idea that you're both made in God's image, both should be treated with respect, you need to fulfill your trust, that means that you're going to serve, and you're going to serve really well, and you're going to serve like you're serving Jesus. If you're an authority, you're supposed to fulfill your trust and treat the people you're around with dignity. So he's like, the first thing a master does is quit threatening people. Quit like brandishing your authority or being an idiot. Like you're there to fulfill your responsibility. That's the point of your trust. You need these people to accomplish it. You want them to flower and flourish. And so you need to treat them in such a way that they flourish, not in a way that threatens them and hurts them and makes them feel like an idiot or feel like they could never do anything. Not just so you won't drive them away, because some of you have people working under you or will have people working under you that you know aren't going to leave and get a different job. You know that. So you could abuse them. 
That doesn't matter. Everybody who's, everybody who's supported under you and everybody, period, is made in God's image and worthy of dignity. It's, it's not related to their position, nor related, nor is the quality or the, or the, the worth of your work related to the height it is in the hierarchy. So like in, in American lives, for example, most American contexts, the higher you are in a business hierarchy, the more money you make, right? And the reason that we do that is because there's competition for competence, and competence is somewhat rare. And so you pay people to become more competent and to do things fewer and fewer people can do. So as they move up in the hierarchy, they tend to be paid more. Does that make sense? Now, there's obviously always corruption built into that. But for the most part, American wages follow IQ and conscientious measurements, which is exactly what they should be if you believe it's a hierarchy of competence. So measurement-wise, like, it's closer than you'd think, right? But here's what—here's the point. It doesn't matter. God—God—I can't repeat it right now. Sorry, Siri. Um, God rewards people on the basis of the good they do without respect to their position. Why? Because where did you get your capacities? You got them from God. You're like, well, I became an engineer. Right. Okay, well, great. But you did—you weren't sick, and you had the basic capacity. You were probably—you probably born into certain situations or helped in certain ways. Right? It's kind of like the whole American debate, did, did you build that or not? The answer is yes, you did, and you didn't. The answer is both. That's why we can't have a political discussion, because there isn't a clear right answer. Right? I'm where I am today because I worked really hard. I'm also where I am today because a lot of people invested an enormous amount in me. So which counts, and how much should I be paid? And nobody knows the answer to that question. But one of the spiritual principles that we have to get as Christians is that God doesn't care because everything is from him. Everything's from him. And so you can be at the top of the competence heap or the top of the hierarchy. And there's going to be somebody else all the way to the bottom. And the only question that matters to God is, is, are you faithfully fulfilling your trust? You have a certain set of responsibilities, a certain set of authorities. Are you faithfully fulfilling your trust now? That's the question. And that's really the only question. So, here's the question for small groups and for you this week that Ashton and I put together. Where would you serve better if you actually acted like you were serving Jesus and not someone else? Where in your life right now would you serve better? Either, either serving down because you're high in the hierarchy or serving up because you're lower in the hierarchy or just serving, period. If you really believed that you were serving Jesus and not men. If you gave up doing what you do to look good and you did what you did to look good to Jesus all the time, who is gracious and demanding. He's gracious in your failures, but he demands that you step up and be the person he made you to be, right? So there's a bunch of ways we can apply this. Jesus is the only, only good and competent master. The reason why Christians can believe in the monarchy of heaven but still believe in democracy is because there ain't no other Jesuses. There's only one fully competent one and only one fully good one. And so we can believe in the, in the absolute monarchy of heaven and believe in all kinds of different forms of government on earth. On earth, it's like whatever system we can come up with that produces the most productivity and the least corruption that's the most just. And that is a prudential question, 
None of us know the answer to that. And every system of government ever created by human beings has been corrupted. So let's not pretend there's one that's going to work. Democracy doesn't work. Socialism doesn't work. Monarchy doesn't work. There is no, there's no, there's no technocracy that's going to work. There is no human government that works without the massive and constant infusion of willful virtue. And if that exists, any probably said the government would work okay. Second is, we need to serve like Jesus serves. I know that's super profound. We have to use authority like Jesus uses authority. That is, if you have authority, don't brandish it, just bear it. And use it to fulfill your trust. Realize that responsibility and authority make up a trust and they should always go together. So you should never accept responsibility where the authority you need to accomplish it isn't given to you. And you should never give someone authority, uh, responsibility, without giving them the authority that they need to accomplish it. Nobody receives a responsibility without a requisite authority, or you're just setting them up for disaster, and yourself for disaster, and everybody for a lack of any kind of productivity or flourishing. Accept or seek authority on the basis of responsibility first, and then the authority needed to carry it out. Right? The Bible says about elders, he who wants to do the work of an elder desires a noble task. See the point there? A person who wants the right responsibility, they want to be involved in other people flourishing. That's what they want. You go, okay. And then what do you do with elders right after that? Then you look at their character, right? It's the qualifications of an elder. Does this person have the character to do this? And then we give them the authority. And when you seek authority, don't be like, I want to be in charge. No, no. Ask yourself, that person who's in charge of the thing you want to be part of, what is their responsibility? What is their job? What is it that they're supposed to make flourish? What is it that they're supposed to bring justice into? What is it that they're supposed to create human flourishing in? In what way and, and how? And, and what does it take to do it? How much work is it? And like, and that's the responsibility. And if you take that authority, you have that responsibility because it's a trust before God. And so if you don't start with responsibility, you might hate yourself for the job that you get in the future. You might abuse people in authority who have very important responsibilities and difficult responsibilities that you don't appreciate or understand. You may not realize that you need a certain amount of authority if you do a job. There's lots of jobs. There's lots of situations where people are offering you the responsibility and they won't give you the authority. Don't take them! There's a lot of ways this has to be applied. And then because all—because all hierarchies are in are fundamentally corruptible because they involve human beings, and because power tends to corrupt, virtue—virtuous character is critical for any hierarchy. Now, there's a thousand applications of this, but the first should be for you. Your growing virtue in Christ to do the right thing and to fulfill your trust well and to not care what people think about you and to be willing to be kicked out of your authority or fired from your job rather than to be corrupt— is a very difficult level of moral character. And you need to start with yourself first. And then when you realize how hard that is, to not cut any moral corners, to really live like you are serving Jesus entirely, you will grow in your qualification to know who should be promoted, and then you'll become a better voter. You'll become a better citizen. You'll become a better mother or father, a better husband or wife, a better everything. Right? And then lastly, you ain't getting this done without Jesus, man. I'm sorry. Like, it's not going to happen. Non-believing people out of a desire to be good and thought good and a desire for things to not be bad can do a lot of really good stuff. And there are a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus who could listen to this whole sermon and agree with about 80% of it. 
But I do not believe this stuff can be operational, truly operational from the suksay, from the soul, the, the heart, the self, out in a way that flows out in joy, even in the injustices of the situations that we're in, without looking to the crucified Christ who died horrifically like a slave so that he could hold the position of our master and call us into anything well, and to yet fill our hearts with the joy of knowing that we're redeemed and that slave and master are all the same to him and that he is no respecter of persons, no matter what the lot of our life is presently, and that he rewards everyone for the good that they do, whether slave or free. And that because of it, no matter what our situation is, if we can make our situation better, we're free to. But no matter what our situation is, the word of Christ to us is, that we are his loved one, we are justified by faith, we are his, we deserve the dignity that he gives us, and we can serve him in any situation that we're in, whether we're in a position of authority, even a position of authority we may not, maybe we shouldn't have, but we can't fully change right now, we can still redeem that to be as just as it can be, or whether we're in a subordinate position that's fairly illegitimate, but we can't change right now, we can transform that in our behavior into as just or productive a trust as that can be. And in doing so, we will also be agents of improving things, not just in productivity, but in justice. That is, in justice, not injustice. So that we can bring about more human flourishing, not just in wealth, but in good relationships of love and peace with each other. But it comes at the cost of following the one that though he was king, he was murdered as a slave that he would lead us in the right uses of all authorities we ever face. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us to face the truth of this, these passages with hope? There's so much to be cynical about in the world, and there's so much that could break our hearts and pull away our hope and Yet we know that if we just wait for things to be all just and good and right and equitable, we will despair and rage and lash out and produce very little good, and we will burn to ashes the good that exists in our lives and the lives of others. And so would you please help us to be your agents in all levels of every human hierarchy to do good and to serve you ultimately from the soul? And will you bless obedience— with productivity and flourishing and justice increasingly? And will you turn the hearts of people in authority to those they are in authority over, and the hearts of those who they are in authority over to those who are in authority over them, that there would be compassion and empathy and love and sacrifice for the co-flourishing of the members in every hierarchy? And would you help us as Christians to lead the way with the resources of the power of your Spirit, knowing that we are yours. Pray in Jesus' name.